Now, now, real people, real opinions. Nighttime talk with Niall Boylan. Ireland's classic hits radio. All right, this time of the night, we always like to introduce you to somebody who has an intriguing story, and tonight is certainly no exception. Our next guest has a fascinating story. Morgan James Kane, better known as Jamie to his friends, was born on the Isle of Man on the 21st of February, 1954. Soon after, he said he was sent to an orphanage in Canada, but while still he, uh, while he was still a baby, he was taken illegally into America. It's an incredible dramatic start to life, but the story doesn't end there. Jamie would go on to spend 34 years in the Californian prison system. And not just in the average prison system, by the way. The most famous prisons that you've probably ever heard of, most of you would have heard of San Quentin, for example, which is a very famous prison in California. I've always wanted to speak to someone who claims they were falsely in prison. And I, I know most of you are going to say, but your Niall doesn't everybody in jail say they didn't do it and they're all innocent. And I agree. But they're genuinely, and we have spoken in the past to somebody who was on death row for something they didn't do. There are genuinely people in jail for things they didn't do. So I'm delighted to be joined by Jamie to discuss his tumultuous childhood and the serious events that would ultimately lead to his arrest and spending time in prison. Jamie, good evening to you. How are you? I'm good, Jamie. What? Well, firstly, what a shocking start to your life. I was actually born in an orphanage as well, by the way. Um, and I, I, I've done a lot of research into that. Trying, I'm sure you've done all your research. I know you did go back to the Isle of Man eventually and do all your research and find out exactly what your roots were and where you came from. But yours is a little bit more exciting than mine. You were brought off to Canada and then illegally kind of smuggled into the United States. Can you explain that story and how it happened? Well, yeah. What, uh, what happened was uh, my father filed for divorce for my mother a month before I was born. And uh, my parents worked for my father's parents at the House Drake Hotel that they owned on the aisle. So the moment my father filed divorce, he moved off the aisle and went down to live in, towards London. And my grandmother immediately threw my mother at, at uh, eight months pregnant out of her job, her home. and stuff and so my mother was able to find refuge with a couple of elderly women who were living in a hovel where I was home birthed by them midwifing me which is why my birth didn't get originally get um, registered until 68 years later I just got that registered two years ago but uh, yeah so but the thing was that uh, the biggest problem my mother had with my grandmother was my mother had started off with part of the Church of England and my grandparents were Roman Catholic. And at the time when I was young, when I was learning about this stuff, I didn't quite understand the, the, the problems until I really started researching like Irish history and, and English history about it. And, uh, but when my mother married my father, my mother's parents in Birmingham, uh, England, uh, actually took her name out of their family Bible and she was dead to them. She would never hear or speak to them again uh, at their request. Right. So, but, but my, my, but she left me on my grandmother's doorstep because I was baptized in the Roman Catholic church, St. Anthony's on the aisle uh, a week after I was born. And then uh, my mother left me a few weeks later in my grandmother's doorstep. Well, my grandmother didn't want the rumors and innuendos and stuff because they weren't from the aisle. They were from Birmingham and Liverpool so they were comeovers, and that kind of played against them. But uh, so they made arrangements through the church to have me sent away. But the law in England said that no British child 
could be sent away without permission from the government. So my grandmother ended up getting me on a ship with 11 Irish children and the, and the nuns that were escorting them. And yeah. I was sent to a place called St. Joseph's Orphan Asylum in Ottawa, Canada. And if you're not familiar with that, St. Joseph's was one of the orphanages that was part of the Thuplius orphan scandal where they were selling children to be indentured servants. I know exactly, because yeah. I was born in one of those mother and baby homes here in Ireland, yeah. of course, that was run by the Catholic Church. Yeah, I was, right. and a lot of the kids that would have been there at the same time as me, 1963, they would have been sold off to Americans. Well, when I say sold off for donations, inverted commas, uh, to, to Americans. Uh, so a lot of those kids ended up in America. Yeah, well, the Duplice Orphans uh, thing was also is that we were, it was ran by the Grey Nuns of the Cross. And one of the things they did is they ran mental hospitals, both in Canada and America. So when they had excess children, they couldn't uh, foster out, as they called it. They uh, actually placed them in mental hospitals and charged the government for their care. So you take a perfectly normal child and you put them in a mental facility for 20, 30, 40 years, they either die or adapt to the people around them. Yeah. Wow. So that was kind of that. That was kind of a big thing. And that was the deal is the woman who took me to Canada was an Irish gal named Martha Boswell, and she was part of the Boswell Gypsies who used to come to the Isle of Man since the 1850s. And uh, when she saw what was going on, she was the one that stole me, took me into America, and my mother had actually given her her passport to give to me when I turned 18 should I want to find my way home. But she took her my mom's picture out and put hers in, and took over my mom's identity and raised me as her son for 12 years. Wow. And what, what was your early life like? Before, I, I know a lot of people are dying to get to the bit about you being in prison, and I'm going to come to that in a few minutes. What was your early life like? Were, were you a bit of a rebel, a bit of a runaway? Well, actually, actually, believe it or not, I was actually a very good boy because of the fact that I helped take care of her, and it was like me and her against the world type thing. Okay, because she kind of saved you, yeah. Yeah, and, and the thing was, she eventually had three daughters, but she always left the daughters with their fathers and kept me. Okay. Yeah. You know? So it was that kind of a weird thing. But the problem was that she had issues with drinking and getting around with bad men with relationships. And so basically uh, when I was uh, 13 and a half, almost 14, um, she had been working as a domestic because she'd been trained silver service. Uh, with the hotels, and so she used to do things that for well-to-do families in in Arizona at the time we were living, and um, one of the families offered to adopt me because her health was failing so badly, and they, in the statement they made to the U.S. government, they said they actually gave her money for me, uh, but the man who, who made this arrangements with her was a guy named Dr. Charles Wetmore, and he was a one of his best friends was a guy named Richard Milhouse Nixon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know him. We do, we, yeah, and, I'm, uh, fami- I'm familiar with that name, all right, yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Wetmore had been uh, in the um, American uh, Army Air Corps and flew as a navigator bombardier three missions out of England during the Second World War. And then he went to work for a thing called the OSS, which was a precursor to the CIA. And uh, I'm, assuming he, that's, I, I'm assuming that's the Secret Service, yeah. Well, it just, yeah, the Central Intelligence Agency is what it developed into. Um, and what we've found is we've actually found sh- uh, uh, shipping manifests where he was involved as 
uh, a member of the State Department uh, helping transport German scientists to Canada, to America, and to South America. And he was on these with them, with you know, other State Department people, and he was listed as an analyst. You know? um, but one of the men that used to come to our house all the time to pick him up to take him to go see President Nixon was a guy named G. Gordon Liddy. You may or may not know yes, that. Yes, I've heard the name before. Yes. Um, but by the he way, your, your, your name was different at that time. Uh, were you John Raymond Wetmore at that time? Um, yeah. Well, once I once he got once he took custody of me, they gave me the name of John Raymond Wetmore, and they gave me a, a birth date that was uh, two years younger than my birth date, and they gave me a Social Security number. It all turned out that he had actually adopted a boy who originally was John Raymond Fry. And then when he adopted him, he became Wetmore. But something happened, and the boy w- went away. And nobody's ever been able to find him since. And they pretty much figure he, he was either killed or something along that nature because his identity he didn't need anymore. That's why they gave it to me, which would cause me problems later in life. Yeah, because the, ter- yeah, the term you use, <laughs> I, I, I'm looking at your own book here, the ter- terms you use, yeah. uh, he suddenly disappeared, <laughs> which, which kind of leads us to believe that was rather intentional. Yeah, well, yeah, he, he disappeared. I took his identity. I was kept at the, I was at a house in Arizona for two weeks, and then we immediately moved to Fresno, California, where Dr. Wetmore took up a teaching position at the university there in Fresno. Um, but in actuality, though he did have a degree, a doctorate degree in business administration, and he held classes in personal management and marketing, his real purpose there was as a recruiter for the CIA. Okay, so so <laughs> what 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 age are you? What a life, by the way. What age are you now at this stage? Well, he got me just just after my 14th birthday, but he backdated my birthday to be make me 12 because I was really quite small because I didn't get fed properly when I was little, so I was a bit undersized and I was a bit under uh, yeah undernourished yeah. Okay. And, but I was a little, but but the thing is, so I actually fit in this other boy's clothes who was only 12. Yeah, you know, and they were actually in some cases a bit big on me because he was a little bit chubbier than I was. So, what, um, so what but, was what was life like? Uh, you know, as a wetmore, was that was that okay? Was life good at that point? Was it better? No, he he, he was really abusive, um, and that's what we think happened. Uh, a lot of people think he he beat the other boy so badly that the boy didn't survive the beatings. But he used to have me hold on to this tree out in the back garden in Fresno, and he would beat me with a, a big solid leather strap. And uh, to the point where I basically couldn't stand up. And wow. but it, but it came to a point where I scared him because I wouldn't cry for him. I would just turn and just stare at him. And he he there was something about that when you get that from yeah. from a fourteen year old boy. And know, he, he probably he was, knew, by the way, Doctor Wetmore probably knew that he, you weren't going to go and say anything to anybody because nobody probably would have believed you because he was such a influential person he had powerful friends you know so he probably thought he was reasonably safe to do whatever he wanted well he he'd actually uh ruptured my appendix in one of the beatings he kicked me so hard it ruptured my appendix and i did try to tell the authorities at the hospital and he came in and said no no he was roughhousing with older boys and got hurt but he doesn't want to tell on the other boys and get them in trouble and they believe him of and course everybody went, Oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Okay, so we need to move forward in time a little bit. Yeah. 
at what point did you start to get yourself in trouble or did you were you getting yourself in trouble or was this a one-off situation and i'm going to come in a few minutes to the murder of stanley kearns but i mean what 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 stage did you start getting yourself into trouble well that was the whole thing is i i didn't get myself into trouble i like i said i i I was i mean i was i was uh kind of rebellious to him if he if he wanted something from me I, i would give him just barely up to that point and wouldn't give me more, even though he knew I could do better. So it was one of these things we were, we never, we were like oil and water. We never mixed right. And, um, but I, cause I, I served in the honorably in the U S military in the Navy as a, as a corpsman with the U S Marines. And, uh, so I got out honorably discharged and I opened up a motorcycle shop and, uh, I'd had a son from my first marriage and um, when I went through a divorce, he tried to get me to give him custody of my son. I wouldn't do it. And that's when he gave me my baptism certificate from the aisle and my, my mother's passport. And uh, he then helped my ex-wife get custody of my son because she'd actually left us and just left my son and told me, you, he's yours. You wanted him. I want to go home and be a daughter again. So, um, and the sad part about that is for all the years, I thought he was my son. And we came to find out only about uh, eight years ago that in actuality he was Dr. Wetmore's son, which is oh. why he wanted that child so badly. Okay, okay, I get you. I guys, you see where you're going now. Okay, so Stanley Kearns, who was Stanley Kearns, and what relationship did you have with him? Or did you have a relationship with him? Oh, have we lost him? Lost him off the line. We'll try and get him back again. Okay, we've got to take a quick break and we'll come back after the break. I think we've lost him there for a second. Nighttime Talk with Niall Boylan. Call us now on 0818 942 105. Ireland's Classic Hits Radio. Is that another January the 5th? So book now at limerickutorial.ie. To Nighttime Talk with Niall Boylan. With Recruit.ie. Download our job search app today. Search for Recruit.ie in your smartphone app store. Ireland's Classic Hits Radio. All right, a lot of people are intrigued by the story, by the way. If you want to do a quick Google on it, you can. And you can look at There's a book there available, by the way, 34 Years in Hell by Jamie Morgan Kane. And it's called My Time Inside America's Toughest Prisons. And he's back on the line again. I do apologize. I don't know how we lost you there for a second. Um, are you back? Yeah, I'm there. Sorry, I'm about right that. here. Sorry, we lost, we lost, <laughs> we lost you there for a second. Okay, we were at, we were yeah. at the point, uh, of course, at this stage where you'd come back out of the military, you'd uh, you'd got obviously custody of your son. You now found out eight year only eight years ago that indeed he wasn't yours; that he was actually Doctor Wetmore's son. Um, at what point did you end up going to jail, or how did you end up, you know, getting accused of this horrible crime? Well, here here's the the, the situation. I wasn't actually accused of the crime. What the deal was is John Kearns is the man that Dr. Wetmore named as the person who took away the other boy to, quote, return him to where he came from uh, in an affidavit that he sent to the Immigration Naturalization Service uh, to, to basically turn me in as being illegal in the country. So he did a 14-page affidavit, and in that statement he said that John Kearns was the man that took the boy away. And uh, John Kearns was actually Martha Boswell's brother-in-law because she had been married to his brother Daniel, which is the father of two of her, her two of her daughters. Um, 
So I think that's why the story gets really interwoven. Yeah. Um, it's like a jigsaw. The, go on, go and, on. And the third daughter, uh, the, the the youngest daughter, that was the was one of Daniel Kearns's, and John Kearns was living with her, and uh, down in West Cabina, California, down by L.A. And on a really strange way, I happened to bump into her at a restaurant down there when I went down to look for some motorcycle parts. We later found out that that had been actually set up by Doctor Wetmore through some other people for. He knew I'd looked for certain parts, and he and I got basically got given the tips that were set up for me to go down. And uh, anyway, so she moved up to Fresno along with John Kearns and, and her son Daniel, who she named after her father. And um, we he was up there for about a year, and he was always in like in my business, and he oftentimes would be very volatile around her and her son, and I would intercede. And so he and I had had numerous physical altercations. And in some of those altercations, I did put him in a sleeper hold and basically put him on the ground. But the police never got there while we were fighting. They got there afterwards. And so in the United States, unless one of us pressed charges, they, they couldn't make an arrest without them actually physically seeing the, yeah. the situation. So anyway, uh, Dr. Wetmore also stated in the statement that one of the things he'd been doing was he'd been paying my new wife, my second wife, and John Kearns and my my what I what I thought was my half sister um, to feed him information about what I was doing and where I was going and things like that. And he made a comment about how easy it was to get somebody to betray another person for just a little bit of cash. And uh, one of the betrayals was when he gave me those documents and I got back, I got with my second wife and I had a second son. I, one day I had already started taking back my, my Morgan James Kane name. Yeah. And, um, I, um, I told my wife, you know, I'm going to get, a, I'm going to get a passport. I'm going to go back over to the UK and I'm going to try to look up family. You know? And she told him and he realized that if I filed for a passport, I have no birth certificate in the U.S., I have no birth certificate anywhere, that questions will start getting asked. And then somebody's going to come up with, well, where's, where's, where's the, the other kid? Yeah. And so he didn't want that to happen. So basically, um, jo uh, John Kearns got arrested for physically assaulting the girl that I thought was my half-sister and her son. He was, he was uh, actually choking the, the two-year-old and took my wife and the girl to pull him off. And then he started punching her while she was driving him, and she drove to a, a battered Winterman Center and ran in and got him arrested. And when he got arrested, he had a, a, a 25 automatic pistol and a wallet holster that was loaded in his back pocket. He had a belt buckle knife, and he had a sword cane. So it, it wasn't like he was, you know, John Q. Citizen. You know, he was a bit on the shady side of himself so he gets arrested and he'd only been he hadn't been in fresno long enough to be given what they call an or release which is on your own recognizance because he didn't have the contacts and the the time there to build the relationships with the community but he somehow got that and it has been speculated that he basically made a call to dr wetmore and said if you don't get me out of jail, I will tell what happened to the other boy, and I'll implicate you. Well, 
there he he took one of the medications he took was asthma capsules and uh the girl that was my thought was my half sister lived with him and because he'd beaten her she had a restraining order so she couldn't go see him in the jail so they actually gave my wife his capsules to take down to him to give him to the jail now most reasonable reasonably thinking persons would know you just can't go to a jail and give give pills no. or any kind of medication but unless you got them well unless you got them well hidden yeah yeah but my my wife actually went in and said oh i've got his medication for me and they said no no if he needs anything we'll give it to him so my wife took him home now my wife and i had a, a big discussion about he's never to come to my house again because i had a small son that was roughly you know uh three years old and um well what comes out of it is that he had actually gotten out, and I didn't know he was out because I had been out of town helping a friend do some construction work. So I come home one night, and it's about 11-something at night, and I notice my wife's car is not in the drive. And um, I walked in the house, turned the light on, and there he is laying on the floor dead. And having been a corpsman, I checked everything, and I could tell he was dead. But there were no marks on him. So... But at the time, he had a loaded 38 caliber revolver in a shoulder holster, you know, and he had a, a belt knife. So it's not a good thing he's in my house with weapons in the dark, and my wife's not there. And you're the only one so, there, and he's dead. Yeah. And I'm the only one there, and he's dead. Now, I now the thing is, this is where people have told me, oh, well, you should have done this, you should have done that. And I tried explaining to them that because I know I had a history of fighting with this man and choking him out. And because of the fact I rode with a motorcycle club at this time. You weren't best friends with the local cops, in other words. Yeah, not really. Yeah, okay. So so the logical person in this situation would call 911. But I'm assuming you didn't. No, my my situation was I have to get him out of my house because I don't know where my wife is because we didn't have cell phones back in that day. And, And so unless you knew where they were, you couldn't just pick up the house phone and call him. So I have no idea where she is. I don't know where my son is. All I know is I don't know if she knows he was in the house. So all I know is I got to get him away from my family. And by the way, you was, know, it, was there any sign of a struggle or was there a sign of other damage to the house? Did it look like he broke in or was the windows broken? or No, nope, nothing was broken. He was just laying on, uh, laying on, his, on his chest, on, on his stomach, uh, on the floor. Um, there was a bottle of whiskey on the table, um, and and what, what do you reckon? Was what it. was his cause of death? Blood? Was it a gunshot? No, there was no injuries at all. So what was the cause so, of death? Well, my my initial thought was I thought because you know he was a heavy drinker and all that stuff, I was thinking he could have possibly had a heart attack. Okay. Yeah, you know, but he was but he was already cold, so it wasn't like I could bring him back because I know CP new CPR and stuff, and so. My thing was, okay, I got to get him away from the family. Now, I knew that if you get released from the jail and you do not have an, uh, a place to go, they send you to the rescue mission in Fresno. So my assumption was that he was probably living by the rescue mission. So I packed him up into a sleeping bag and I put him in the back of my truck. And I was going to take him down and put him like down there where the skid row area where well, he'd be found. Yeah. And uh, just as I was closing up the tailgate on my car, my wife drives up. And it's now probably after midnight. 
and I didn't call any of my friends because I didn't want to implicate any of my friends in it, you know, and stuff. Any of my club brothers, I didn't want anybody else getting involved in it. And my wife comes up and says, yeah, he came over. I, I was surprised. Uh, I cooked him a meal. And she tells me the meal that she cooked him, you know. And she said, and then I gave him his medication. And she goes, and then he sat down, and he started drinking, and then he just collapsed. And she goes, and I got so scared, I grabbed our son, and I went over to one of my friend's house, and I've been sitting there. But I knew you said you'd be back before midnight, so I was waiting until I thought you might be back because I knew you'd know what to do. So we get in the truck, and we start driving. And that's when it really gets bad because then for almost four hours, I've got her yelling at me about what are you going to do? How come you don't have a shovel? <laughs> this, yeah. Where, where's your shovel? Where what are we gonna do yeah. with them? Yeah. And, and, and so the thing is, being the fact that I wasn't expecting to have a dead man in my house. No. I really didn't have a backup so, plan for this. So he basically OD'd uh, on the medication. But, well, that's well. The thing was, it's only asthma medication. So this is the whole deal. So what ends up happening is it's starting to get what they call false dawn, when you just start to see light in the. <laughs> coming up in the east and you know in another hour it's going to be right so we were driving out in the, in the country the county of fresno it's all agricultural so i pulled up to a, a place uh, on a road and i actually went over and i sat him up against a fence post i knew he'd be found i, I actually i actually have an you know what this is amazing i actually have an image of this it's like watching a movie listening to you explain this i have an image of this guy now sitting like something like at a weekend something at a weekend of bernie's <laughs> sitting against the fence post but go on and i set him up there and i and and i put his whiskey bottle next to him and stuff and then i do the stupidest thing i probably could have done and i've been told this by other prisoners as well as staff members and everybody else is that because he didn't have any identification on him, I took a piece of paper and pencil and wrote, in case of emergency, call this, and I stuck it in his wallet. And people say, why would you do that? And I said, you know, it's, I wanted to make sure that he was identified and then the body could be cared for properly. At that and point. when you say call this, whose number did you put on it? Yours? My number. <laughs> My 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 motorcycle shop. Number. You might as well have just wrote down and I killed him. By the way. Well, well, that that's kind of what other people said. But I thought, well, you know, you know, a lot of people back then used to have who who to reach in case of emergency type thing, right? So anyway, he was found about a half an hour later by the farm workers coming out to the fields. You know, well, it was three days before they actually notified any of us, and the first person they notified was the girl that had been his victim. Well. Unbeknownst to me, her and my wife then take my truck and they go to the bank. And because he had taken the girl's welfare money, the dole money from her every month, yeah, she went down there. She forged checks on his name and got her four hundred pound or four hundred dollars back. Right. Well, of course, they've already notified the bank the man's dead. So now there are checks being written and signed and stuff. So. They, we all end up getting arrested, all three of us. And the original coroner's uh, autopsy came back saying he'd been strangled, right? So a six, and, they said asphyxiation, yeah. Yeah, death by asphyxiation, strangul- and then it said, you know, presumed strangulation is what it said. So it's like, well, who could have done it? Well, I'm ex-military, I have training, and the story has said that I 
Oh no, we have lost him again. Hold on, we try and get him back. Are you there? Oh, we've lost him again. And I tell you what, we're not going to have a huge amount of time. And I really want to hear this story. So when he does come back on, we're going to get to the points, obviously, where he gets to court. But there's so much of this story in relation to the prisons that he's been in his life that I'm going to have to ask him to come back on Monday. Right. I am. Yeah, yeah, you're back, you're back. But yeah. uh, this is like, you left us on a knife edge. You can't just yeah. do that to us, Jamie. <laughs> so so anyway, so we all get arrested, and, they, and, and the thing was, they charge all three of us with, with the strangulation because that's all they've got at the moment. But then as they start uh, looking into it, they, they look at the uh, forgery charges, and they put them on the girl. And as soon as they tell her she's looking at 18 years for forging these checks, she goes, whoa, 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 she tells her lawyer. And she then, and they get a hold of DA and said, let's make a deal. She'll tell you, I'll tell you what really happened to, to John Kearns and how he really died. And so the DA and everything says, okay, says that my, my wife, the capsules that she gave him had cyanide poisoning in it. And my wife gave him these capsules, and he was, and he died from cyanide poisoning, which, of course, cyanide poisoning also uh, shows up as asphyxiation. Yeah. yeah. So they go and they do a second autopsy, and sure enough, they they that's what they come up for the second autopsy. But she had told them also that I hadn't done anything except move the body, you know. So she's playing the the prosecution's primary witness against my wife. My wife is now facing two counts of the death penalty um, because she's she's got um, murder for financial gain and because of murder by poison. And of course, as they will tell you, you know, on, in generality, poison is more of a woman's weapon than a man's. Okay. Yeah. And, and I was a very physical type person anyway. And, uh, but anyway, so they start trying my wife. Well, now they realize that in actuality, the most that I could get was just basically moving a body. And, and then, of course, the police kept telling me that I lied to them because when they interviewed me, they said, when was the last time you saw John Kearns alive? And I told them two weeks ago. And they and then, so of course, the thing was they said, no, because you saw him when you moved him. I said, yeah, but he wasn't alive. And that oh, okay. was kind of like, like they well, okay, okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> Now you're splitting hairs. I said, no, you asked me a question. I gave you the answer, that type of thing. So anyway, they tried my wife, and they kept changing charges on me. They kept accessory and conspiracy, and, and they kept doing that. Perverting kept, the course of justice, all sorts of things, right. yeah. Well, they kept, every few weeks, they'd rearrain me on new charges, and they'd move my, my bail up to like $2 million. And, and yet the charges they, that they were putting on me were basically – almost misdemeanor charges. So they were, they were charges that I wouldn't even do a year in the county jail for. So, but they run my wife's trial and the very, and they run it really quickly. Uh, then the, the first jury comes back and it becomes a hung jury because one man could not bring himself to sign off on having my wife put to death. And he tells him after the, 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 the trial is called a, a mistrial, he tells the DA, if you'd wanted just to put her in prison for the rest of her life on life without, I could let her die in prison. I just couldn't be the one to help sign the paper saying kill her. But the other 11 did, right? So anyway, I, uh, about 
two week about well about a week before they were going to retry her because they were getting a, getting a new trial set. The DA comes in. My wife's attorney's there. My attorney's there, and the DA's there. And the DA says, "Well, here's the deal. I'm going to offer you a one time and one time deal, and I'm going to give you 15 minutes to make a decision." And he says, uh, "If you'll take responsibility as the head of the household." Um, I will drop all pending charges on your wife, release her, and to return your son to her. He goes, and you'll serve 13 years in prison. And uh, he goes, now you've got 10 minutes. And then it comes down, he goes, uh, so really tell me, who, who do you think could do time better in prison? You, the big tough biker and ex-military guy, or your wife who's just a housewife and part-time clerk thing like that? You know, and he starts rattling on about stuff like that. And, and then he goes, okay, now we're down to five minutes. And he says, oh, oh, by the way, if you don't take this deal, how are you going to tell your son that you had a chance to save his mother's life and you didn't do it? I mean, I mean, after all, you're the guy who ran through gunfire to rescue wounded Marines and stuff, but you're not going to rescue your wife. You're not going to stand up for your family. That didn't leave you with much choice, really, did it? Yeah, and then he comes down, you know. And then he comes down and says, "Look, okay, it's 90 seconds, and I'm going to tell you right now, I'm getting ready to walk out of this room." He goes, I'm gonna, the only thing I'm going to do is sweeten the pot is I will never oppose any parole. And as long as you uh, do good time and work time in prison and stay out of trouble, you'll do 13, 13 and a half years tops. But if you get in any trouble, then it goes up to 27 with the L on it and stuff. And uh, I look at my attorney and I look at my wife's attorney and they said, this is the best deal we're going to get. Yeah. And. Then the DA says, you realize if you do this time, in 13 and a half years, you'll still get to see your son graduate high school. And then he said, I'm down to 15 seconds. What's your decision? So. You took it. I went, okay, I'll take it. Now, now, real people, real opinions. Nighttime Talk with Niall Boylan. Ireland's classic hits radio.